morning, church. It's good to see you all this morning. We are continuing our series in Esther, and today uh, we've reached the halfway point of both the book itself and the story that is being told in Esther. And if you were here last week, then you remember Pastor Matt, as we finished up chapter four, uh, kind of left things taking, uh, heading in a little bit of a, a dark direction. We were introduced to Haman in chapter three and quickly learned that not only did Haman have a family history of hatred towards the Jewish people going back generations, but he also had become the second most powerful man in Persia. And one of his first orders of business was to put a law in place that would bring about the annihilation of the Jewish people. And when Mordecai, who was a Jewish official in the capital city, discovered this plot, he was distraught. However, uh, his adopted daughter Esther just so happened to now be the queen, and he implored her to do something to intervene. And so Esther asked Mordecai and all of the Jewish people in the capital city to fast for three days. And that's where chapter four ended. So to say that things in the kingdom were a little on edge or a little complicated is probably a bit of an understatement, but that's where we are today when we come to chapter five. So I wanna invite you to follow along with me as I read verses one through 14. On the third day, Esther dressed in her royal clothing and stood in the inner courtyard of the palace facing it. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the royal courtroom facing its entrance. And as soon as the king saw Queen Esther standing in the courtyard, she gained favor with him. The king extended the gold scepter in his hand toward Esther, and she approached and touched the tip of the scepter. What is it, Queen Esther? The king asked her. Whatever you want, even to half the kingdom, will be given to you. If it pleases the king, Esther replied, may the king and Haman come today to the banquet I have prepared for them. The king said, hurry and get Haman so we can do as Esther has requested. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. While drinking the wine, the king asked Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you want, even to half the kingdom, will be done. And Esther answered, this is my petition and my request. If I have found favor in the eyes of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and perform my request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet I will prepare for them. Tomorrow I will do what the king has asked. That day Haman left full of joy and in good spirits. But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate, and Mordecai didn't rise or tremble in fear at his presence, Haman was filled with rage toward Mordecai. Yet Haman controlled himself and went home. He sent for his friends and his wife Zeresh to join him. Then Haman described for them his glorious wealth and his many sons. He told them all how the king had honored him and promoted him in rank over the other officials and the royal staff. What's more, Haman added, Queen Esther invited no one but me to join the king at the banquet she had prepared. I'm invited again tomorrow to join her with the king. Still, none of this satisfies me since I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate all the time. His wife Zeresh and all of his friends told him, have them build a gallows 75 feet tall. Ask the king in the morning to hang Mordecai on it. Then go to the banquet with the king and enjoy yourself. The advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows constructed. 
So a few years ago, my wife Rachel and I both uh, got hooked on to a TV show that maybe some of you have seen called Lost. And Lost came out in the early 2000s. And for those of you that are not familiar, basically it's a TV show about a group of survivors who've crashed on an island and they spend the entire six seasons trying to get off the island. Uh, one of the things that I loved the most about this show was just the amount of plot twists and turns that happen in every single episode. And every episode, almost every episode, ended with some kind of massive cliffhanger, some kind of massive thing that kept you uh, waiting till the next week to see what happened. But because we started watching um, Lost six years after it had gone off the air, uh, we had the advantage of having access to every episode. And so you can already imagine where that's going. At night, we would come at the end of the day and say, hey, let's just watch one episode and see what happens. And then three episodes later, there we are, trying to find a stopping point, knowing we've got to get up early, um, but just looking for any kind of resolution in the plot so that we could turn it off and go to sleep. You know, if the book of Esther is like uh, one of those bingeable TV shows, then chapter five is like a cliffhanger episode that's gonna leave us with a whole lot of resolution to be desired. I mean, think about just the two major rises and falls that we've seen in these 14 verses. We see Esther taking this risk, uh, risking her life to ask the king to come and to save her people. Uh, but instead of asking, what does she do? She delays until the next day. We see Haman hyping himself up uh, to his friends and his wife, all excited about all the uh, worldly possessions he has and the prestige. Uh, then he devises a plot to kill Mordecai. And what happens? The chapter ends, right? That's the end of it. And as we've seen over and over in this series on Esther, and once again, we see it in these verses, God and his work in the lives of his people, it seems to be missing. And over the past, past few weeks, one of the questions we've answered, the most obvious question is, where is God? This morning, I wanna raise a, a second question that is equally as important, and it's the question, is God really trustworthy when I don't see him? Is God really trustworthy when I don't see him? When God doesn't seem to be near or involved in the world around me or in the circumstances of my life, can he really be where I place my hope and my trust in my life? And what I want you to see this morning from uh, Esther chapter five is that the answer to that question is an emphatic yes. Yes, God is near. Yes, God is at work. Yes, God is trustworthy, even when we don't see him. When we take Esther chapter five in context of the whole book of Esther and in the context of the uh, major story of God's redemptive work that's being told from Genesis to Revelation, we see that the hand of God is actively intentionally involved in accomplishing his good purposes. This is what we mean when we talk about the doctrine of God's providence, that God is working through every decision we make, through every circumstance that's happening around us and in our world, God is working and using those for his glory and for the good of those who love him. From the beginning of scripture, God is providentially at work in the lives of his people. And when we get to the end of scripture, to the book of Revelation, what we see is that God is going to continue to be at work in the lives of his people until he has completed his redemption plan. 
This should be a, a great encouragement to us this morning. It should be a reminder to us, if, if we're not seeing God near, if we're not seeing God involved, that has more to do with our limited sight and less to do with God's limited care. God is a providential God. God is a God who is involved. Because God is provident, God is also trustworthy. And what we see in Esther 5 this morning is that because our God is trustworthy, he is worth following even when it's risky. Because our God is trustworthy, he is worth following even when it's risky. So in the first few verses uh, of our text this morning, we see one way that this kind of risky following plays out. We see it as Esther displays courage that will define her moving forward for the rest of the story. Verse one, on the third day, Esther dressed in her royal clothing and stood in the inner courtyard of the palace facing it. There was, there was an incredible amount of risk involved in what just took place in that verse. This was not just a husband and wife needing to have a conversation. This was not just a, a family meeting at the dinner table. We've already seen previously that marriages in the king's palace uh, are not to be held up in any kind of positive example. This was a, in a very real sense, a life or death moment for Esther. In the king's palace, everybody knew one thing, and that is you don't bother the king. You especially don't bother the king unannounced. Showing up unannounced could easily result in banishment or death, depending on what side of the bed Xerxes had woken up on that morning. But we see what happens in verse two. As soon as the king saw Queen Esther standing in the courtyard, she gained favor with him. The king extended the gold scepter in his hand toward Esther, and she approached and touched the tip of the scepter. So much was hanging in the balance in that moment. You know, if Xerxes hadn't extended the, the golden scepter her way and acknowledged that today was a good day and she could come and she could make a request, then the story ends in chapter five. The bingeable series that is Esther is canceled mid-season with no resolution. There's no preservation of God's children. There's no feast of Purim to celebrate and remember all that God had done. There's no Jesus, there's no gospel, there's no good news for any of us. But what we see in verse two is that that's not what happened. We see God at work. Esther standing in the courtyard gained favor and the golden scepter was extended. She had the king's attention and it was worth the risk. You know, taking risks for the kingdom is not a new concept for Christians. It's uh, not a, a new concept for us as a local church. In fact, it is one of the eight pursuits that we have identified, identified as a church that drive uh, the decisions we make. We risk intentionally. And this is how we talk about risking intentionally as one of our pursuits at Brook Hills. It's gonna be on the screen behind me. We pursue faith so we risk intentionally. Biblical faith involves truth, conviction, and action. Prayerfully dependent on God and empowered by the Spirit, we step out in trust to follow 
wherever he leads. Just like going before the king was worth the risk for Esther, following Christ is worth the risk for us. But the beauty of following our trustworthy God is that even when it is risky, we aren't approaching him in the same way that Esther approaches King Xerxes. God's response to you is not dependent on if he's had a good day or a bad day. Your life is not hanging in the balance on which of those is true. Our God is a good father and a righteous king who through Christ, our mediator has already extended the golden scepter. He's not waiting and responding to you entering into his presence. He is inviting you to come into his throne room. He is inviting you to gather before him, to find new life in him, to worship him, to give our lives to following him. So whatever risk there is involved in following Christ is done under the invitation and the involvement of our provident and trustworthy God. So when you think about that this morning, what is there in your life? Is there risk that you're being asked to take in order to follow Christ? You know, Matt mentioned a, a few weeks ago these postures of running and walking and leaning in our relationship with God. And for some of you, leaning on God might be where the risk is. Showing up this morning, trusting that he is good, even when it's hard to do, might be where it is for you. And I'll just tell you that it's worth it. The risk is worth it. Maybe for some of you this morning, there is sin that needs to be put to death. You are tired of battling alone. It is time to bring sin from darkness into the light. It is worth the risk. Maybe there's a, a neighbor or a coworker or a friend or a family member that you love, that you have a relationship with, that you know it's time to enter into some gospel conversations about things that have eternal and significant meaning. It is worth the risk. Maybe you're wrestling with a call to give your life to advancing the gospel to the nations, but are scared of what that might look like or what that might cost. It is worth the risk. If you're not a follower of Christ, then the risk may be taking that step today, repenting and putting your faith in the one who forgives sin and gives new life. It is worth the risk. No matter what we are asked to give up, no matter where you are asked to go, no matter how much of an unknown there may appear to be, following our trustworthy God who is working through all things to accomplish his good purposes is worth the risk. He's not only worth following, but our trustworthy God is worth waiting on even when we think the time is now. He's worth waiting on even when we think the time is now. Verses four and five, having gained the favor of the king, Esther invites the king and Haman to dinner. And you know it's about to be on, right? It's been building up to this moment. We all love a little bit of drama that doesn't involve us, and we're primed to get some of that in this story. We are ready to see Esther spill the tea on all that's been going on. We're ready to see her expose Haman. We're ready to see the plot to kill the Jews be uh, ended. We're ready to see Haman be brought to justice, to have uh, the king and Esther and everyone live 
happily ever after. The moment has finally come. The table is set, dinner's been served. Verse six tells us that once again, the king has had a little wine and is feeling good. He even asked her a second time, what can I do for you? Anything you want up to half the kingdom. And Esther says, verse eight, if I have found favor in the eyes of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and perform my request, May the king and Haman come to the banquet I will prepare for them. Tomorrow, I will do what the king has asked. So that's kind of a letdown in some ways, right? Esther has gone through all of these massive hurdles to get to this moment. She has risked her life to get to this moment, and then we'll do it tomorrow. Was Esther scared in that moment? Was Esther being wise in that moment? Is she building the king's anticipation in that moment, did she know that tomorrow would be a better environment uh, to bring that up? Maybe it was some form of all of those. Our text doesn't explicitly say what her motivations were, but what we do see is that Esther didn't make her request when it seemed like the time was right. And what we'll see play out, especially when we move into chapter six, next week is that her delay proved to be an essential part of God's providential and perfect timing. Esther's delay proved to be a part of God's perfect timing. Yeah, how many times have you thought it would be nice if God would work a little bit faster, be a little bit more on my schedule, go at a little bit more closer to my pace, because I always seem to be a few steps ahead of of where he is. You know, waiting is, is such a hard thing for us to do. We are an impatient people who are in a hurry and want, want it done yesterday. Um, we just moved recently, uh, two weeks ago, and one of the things that we had to do when we were getting our house ready to sell is, um, you know, patch all the holes and do all the little things like that. And so we had moved out of the house and we were kind of running on a real tight timeline and um, I was one day going over to the house just to do the last few things we had to do. And one of the things I had to do was in our dining room, I had to take off some floating bookshelves that I had um, built and screwed into the wall. And so uh, as I started trying to do that, uh, the, I realized that both of the screws were stripped. And so um, what I thought would probably be an, a better plan then was for me just to use my brute strength and just rip it out of the wall. And I knew there'd be some small holes uh, but I said, you know, I can patch that. Well, what I didn't account for was that when I installed those originally, I installed them with two and a half inch screws. And while one side was in drywall, the other side was in the stud. And so in my, uh, you know, just thinking I was just gonna rip these out, I go and grab them and try to rip it out. And what happens is the right side comes out and then the whole shelf hinges and punches a hole the size of a basketball into our wall. And our house is set to go on the market the next day. So I just, you know, Rachel was out of town. I said, you know what, I'll fix it, I'll take care of it. So I go downstairs and find a piece of uh, old drywall that we had and decided that I was gonna fix it up. And my dad's here this morning, so dad, I'm sorry. Hope I don't uh, let you down too much. But took the, took the drywall, put it up there and just said, painted it, threw it up there, said, I think we're good to go. Next day, uh, my real estate agent calls me and he says, hey Nate, um, I just wanted to tell you this as a friend, which I can tell you is not what you wanna hear from your real estate agent telling you anything as a friend. He was like, I don't know if you guys paid somebody to fix this uh, area in your dining room, 
but this looks terrible, and it is, it is going to be the first thing people see when they walk in. You're, they're not going to want to do it. Um, and so what I wanted to do in that moment was say, yeah, we hired some guy, and he did a terrible job, and we're trying to work through it. But um, I was honest with him, and I said, yeah, I'm sorry, man. That was my fix that needs to be fixed. And so we had to get somebody to come and, um, and fix that. But, you know, if you're like me, that those are, there are moments like that where – uh, a little bit more patience, a little bit more waiting, a little bit more, uh, you know, thinking through some of that stuff would have benefited me and uh, our house in a great way. It's hard to wait. It's hard for me, for us to wait on unimportant things like drywall, but it's even harder for us to wait on things that really matter, especially when we're waiting on God to answer. When we're asking God to give us direction about a career decision. We're asking God to give us direction about uh, a relationship, about other big life decisions. When you are praying and asking God to save someone that you love and care about, uh, and it doesn't seem like he is hearing or working. When you're asking God to heal someone and it's not happening. When you're asking God to help you, that you want to feel closer to him in worship, in your personal worship, in corporate worship, you want to know um, that he is near and it feels like you are still having to wait. The list could go on and on, but, but the point is waiting on God is part of the Christian life. And often it's a difficult part of the Christian life because we tend to think that our timing is best. We tend to think that our needs are most pressing, and we tend to think that if God would, would just answer uh, my request, I could get on with my life. But often what God wants us to do is to wait, to lean on him, to depend on him, to be reminded that he is in control and that we are not, and that that is a really good thing. You know, often our limited view of the world, in our limited view of the world, we are tempted to think the perfect time is now, maybe even yesterday. But our timing is not God's timing, and he is the one who is perfect and providential. You know, we have such a, a narrowed view of the full picture of what God is doing and why. We're looking at the world through a peephole in the front door, and God is sustaining the world in the palm of his hand. He can be trusted in our waiting. You know, one of my favorite psalms is Psalm 121, and uh, Rachel said that, that is, she calls it my back pocket sermon because she's heard it about 45 times in our marriage, and um, it's kind of my go-to, but I, I really love that psalm. And what I love about it uh, the most is just the reminder it gives of God's work and his vantage point in our lives. And so I just want to read it, and I don't, it's not going to be on the screen. I just want you to listen to it and listen for the ways that you see God at work in our lives. I lift my eyes toward the mountains. Where will my help come from? My help comes from the Lord the maker of heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. Your protector will not slumber. Indeed, the protector of Israel does not slumber or sleep. The Lord protects you. The Lord is a shelter by your right side. The sun will not strike you by day or the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all harm. He will protect your life. The Lord will protect your coming and going both now and forevermore. When you're waiting on God, that's the God that you're waiting on. 
you are waiting on the God who is your helper, the God who is the creator of all things, the God who is our protector, the God who does not sleep, the God who is our shelter and who will keep us from harm. No matter what you're waiting on this morning, remember the truth of God's word as you wait. God hears you. God is near to you. God is at work. God will see you through to the end. God is trustworthy and he's worth waiting on. Last thing that we see about our trustworthy God this morning is that he is worth trusting even when life falls apart. You know, as we get to the last few verses of chapter five, it's becoming clear that things aren't going to resolve themselves uh, in the time or manner in which Mordecai would probably prefer, uh, that Esther would probably prefer, that the original readers of this story would probably prefer, and even us would probably prefer. In fact, in a lot of ways, chapter five leaves the story of Esther worse off than it began. In verse nine, we see that the first banquet is now over. And Esther didn't make her plea for the king's intervention. And Haman, verse nine, left full of joy and in good spirits until he sees Mordecai. And now his arrogance is only outmatched by his hatred. Verse 11, we see Haman invites his wife and friends over and they get the pleasure of hearing him brag about all of the material blessings he has and all of the power and prestige that he's been giving. How special he is to be invited to dinner with the king and queen. It sure seems like the bad guys are winning. Verse 13, when Haman reveals that none of that satisfies him because he isn't respected by Mordecai. You're hoping for at least some kind of uh, truth talking to happen and maybe his wife and his friends will talk some sense into him and let him see how ridiculous that is. But instead what we get is verse 14. His wife is arrest and all his friends told him, have them build a gallows 75 feet tall. Ask the king in the morning to hang Mordecai on it. Then go to the banquet with the king and enjoy yourself. The advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows constructed. And that's where we end things. Dinner is over. The king hasn't been asked to intervene. Haman has been honored. He's been given all that the world has to offer. He's still allowed to perpetuate evil unchecked. Mordecai dies first thing in the morning and the Jewish people have an annihilation date on the calendar. That's why the question that we're left asking at the end of chapter five is, is God worth trusting when it all seems to be falling apart? Now many of you are familiar with uh, Christian author and speaker Elizabeth Elliot, who passed away in 2015, but if you aren't familiar with her story, it's worth spending some time to, to just read about her life and her impact uh, for the, the kingdom of God. But in brief, she was married to Jim Elliott, who was a missionary um, who, along with another group of men, were killed by an indigenous tribe in eastern Ecuador when they tried to make contact with them in the 1950s uh, for the sake of, of sharing the gospel. And it was just a, a tragic and a horrific story 
uh, of what happened to them. One of the redeeming ends of that story, though, is that, um, that eventually some of the tribe members, including those who had killed her husband, came to know Christ through the perseverance and continued um, taking of the gospel by the families of the men who had been killed. So it's just a, an incredible, uh, true example of following Christ being worth the risk. But in 1989, Elizabeth wrote a book called On Asking God Why and Other Reflections on Trusting God in a Twisted World. And in one of those chapters, she talks about the pain of losing her husband, Jim. And she talks about how it was made so much harder and, and much worse in a, in a moment in time when she met, several years later, met one of the tribesmen who had killed her husband. He was now a believer, um, but she met with him uh, and able to be able to record his account of what happened on that fateful day. Uh, and it was just, uh, it was disturbing for her and, and a horrific experience. And in her chapter in this book, she sums up her feelings and her thoughts and emotions about uh, that whole thing. This is what she has to say. God is God. That was the stunning lesson of the most stunning event in my life. Jim's death required me to deny God or believe him, to trust him or renounce him. The lesson is the same for all of us. The context differ. Elizabeth Elliot was faced with the question that we're asking at the end of Esther 5. And in a very real way, it's the same question that we find ourselves asking today. Is God God? Is God worth trusting when it all seems to be falling apart? In the midst of COVID pandemic, sickness, death, division, pain, just the exhaustion of this whole thing, is God trustworthy? We see the, the destruction and the chaos and the evil happening in our world, places like Afghanistan, Haiti, is God trustworthy? You know, even yesterday, reflecting on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, it just had me thinking about this question. Was God trustworthy 20 years ago on the day that changed our country forever? Is he trustworthy when you don't see him in the difficulties of your own life? When you're waiting on him to answer you? When you're waiting on him to direct your next step? When you're waiting on him to provide, and what it seems like you're getting is silence. Is God trustworthy? When the people you love are sick, when they are suffering, when they are exhausted, when they are in pain, and you're looking for anything to grasp onto for hope, is he trustworthy? Yes, he is trustworthy. How do we know? How do we know? Because we know how the story ends. We know how Esther ends because we're gathered here today, 2,000 years later, worshiping the Savior that was promised and preserved. God came through. God did what he said he was gonna do. Christ came to earth. He lived a perfect life. He died on a cross, accepting punishment for our sins. He rose from a grave three days later, conquering sin and death. He made salvation and a future and a hope possible for anyone who repents of their sin and places their complete trust in him. And it's because of this good news that this life, this 100, 100 or so years that we have on this earth 
This isn't all there is. You know, I mentioned the, the show Lost at the beginning of the sermon. What I hated about Lost was how it ended. I really hated how it ended, and I wasn't alone. It was, uh, at, best, at best, a very polarizing ending. There were not too many people who were kind of neutral on how the whole series ended. You either hated it and wish you'd never even watched the show, or you just absolutely loved it and you're kind of weird, but just kidding. <laughs> Uh, the show ended, hated how it ended. But throughout the, the six seasons, throughout the 120 episodes or so, no one knew exactly how it was going to end. Every episode with its massive twists and its massive turns and its huge cliffhangers was leaving you guessing, giving your best guess, changing your guess each week as to how exactly the show was gonna end. And for many, including myself, it was a really big letdown. But this morning, if you are a follower of Christ, you don't have to guess how the story of your life is going to end. We know what happens. We have the end of the story and it is a glorious hope that we have been promised from a trustworthy God. The very end of the Bible, the last book, Revelation chapter 21, the Apostle John gives us a picture of what that glorious hope looks like. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief will be no more. Crying and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. He also said, write, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. That's the hope that we look forward to this morning. And in the meantime, we follow, we wait, and we trust in the one who is bringing it to completion. God is not silent or distant in Esther chapter five. He is providential, he is working, he is trustworthy. God is not silent or distant in your life or your circumstances this morning. He is providential, he is working, he is trustworthy.